0: let's pray. Lord, bread of heaven, feed us. Feed us through your word and later through your table. You are our true food, our true rest, and our most certain security. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. I am very grateful to be part of this Sabbath series and also very aware of how much I am simply a fellow traveler, trying to live into a deeper appreciation of the gift of Sabbath rest. This is not a practice that I've been able to adequately incorporate into my life yet, though I have understood at an intellectual and a spiritual level that it's important and that it's a blessing. And I've wanted to embrace the gift more, more fully, and yet, like many of you, I find its practice crowded out by the demands of the week, by responsibilities, by worries, by scheduling that I don't always control. And so I am grateful that in order to prepare for the sermon, I um, had to reflect more fully on what it means to live into the practice of Sabbath rest. And I pray that my words this morning will be heard as words of grace and encouragement. Our text, as you just heard, for this morning is Exodus 16. The story of God's provision of manna in the wilderness with instructions about gathering it for six days and then resting from gathering on the seventh. It's a story that captures God's generosity and patience and blessing along with human frailty and disobedience. It's also a story about different forms of nourishment, food and Sabbath. But before we look at it closely, let me set the stage for the story. In the chapters prior to Exodus 16, we find the dramatic account of the liberation of the children of Israel from Egypt, from their slavery in Egypt. It's an account of how God led them through the wilderness daily, going before them, providing light and direction. And in the midst of their journey, Pharaoh and his army begin to pursue them again. Not surprisingly, the children of Israel were terrified. And they cry out to the Lord for help. But they say to Moses in desperation, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? But Moses reassures them that God will deliver them from yet another desperate situation. And God does in the miraculous deliverance through the Red Sea. And then at the end of chapter 14, we read, Israel saw the great work that the Lord did against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And then they sing songs that we read about in chapter 15, songs of rejoicing, of praise, of thanks, and of confidence. Who is like you, O Lord, among gods? Who's like you, majestic in holiness, doing wonders? And they celebrate God's steadfast love and guidance God's protection and provision. It really is quite the celebration. But within a few days of walking through the wilderness without water, they begin complaining again. It really must have been terrifying to be without water in the wilderness. But it's still surprising just how quick they are to start complaining after they had just experienced and celebrated God's protection and provision. And so once again, God provides water and a promise of protection. And in fact, brings them to Elam, a place where there are 12 springs of water. It's an oasis. And at the end of chapter 15, it's a picture of gracious, lush, life-giving provision. There's plenty of water for them. There's plenty of shade and rest. And then we come to chapter 16. The children of Israel leave lovely Elam and they head into the wilderness again. And within a few days, their food has run out and their complaining has resumed. The stinging, complaint-filled rebuke comes to Moses and Aaron this time. If only God had killed us in Egypt. At least in Egypt, we weren't hungry. But you have brought us out to the wilderness to kill us by starvation. This, I would say, is a downright miserable congregation. Right. <laughs> In their fear, they rewrite their own very recent history. They forget God's most recent acts of miraculous rescue and provision, and they start their complaint. They make most difficult congregations look easy by comparison. And somehow, God's grace and discipline and provision prevail again. God promises to rain bread from heaven on them in the morning there will be enough food and they will not be hungry. But with provision also comes a test, a proving ground. And so we read in verse four, then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. And each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. In that way, I'll test them, whether they'll follow my instruction or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it'll be twice as much as they gather on the other days. And sure enough, God provides the quail and the manna, though it's all a bit of a mystery. God's provision for them falls out of the sky, right? It falls out of the sky. All they need for food, and it falls out of the sky. And then if we move down to verse 16, we find another set of instructions. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it as each of you needs, an omer to a person according to the number of persons, all providing for those in their own tents. And so they did. Some people gathered more, some people gathered less, but when they measured it with their measuring cups, it all came out the same. Somehow, they had what they needed. Food enough for that day for every person. And that's the next bit of the command. You can't store up the manna. Don't leave anything for the next day. It was clearly a strange and difficult command for a people who constantly worried about being hungry, about having enough food. Surely to just gather enough and then eat it all would be irresponsible. And so some of them decided to be frugal, to be cautious, to eat a little less so there'd be some leftovers in case the manna wasn't there the next morning. Except that in their fear and their determination to provide for themselves, they missed the point. And so the leftover set aside manna, the bread from heaven they tried to keep till the next morning turned bad, rancid, wormy, gross. And Moses, once again, was very frustrated with his congregation. One of the things we notice in this account is how the meaning of the manna is revealed gradually. As the people got to the end of the week, the sixth day, After gathering it each morning, they gathered twice as much. And if you look at verses 22 and following, Moses tells them then what's about to happen. Tomorrow, the seventh day, is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you want to bake, boil what you want to boil, and all that's left over put aside to keep until morning. I think the people must have been more than puzzled at this point. This time, they're told to gather the manna and keep some, for the day of rest, for the Sabbath. They must have wondered. Um, last time we did this, we got in big trouble. But most of them were obedient and found that the manna on the day of rest was still good and it was sufficient. And Moses tells them, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you'll gather it, but on the seventh, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. So most of the people rested and enjoyed God's provision. But someone went out on the day of rest to gather some more manna. Why? Were they stupid? Or deaf? Or disobedient? Or were they maybe the super achievers? The ones trying to make sure that there really was enough. In any case, there wasn't any manna to be found, and there was a very frustrated Moses who was wondering whether his congregation would ever learn to keep God's commands or follow God's instructions. And he says to them, look, see, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore on the sixth day he gives you food for two days, each of you stay where you are, do not leave your place on the seventh day. And so the people rested. The manna that God provided and its manner of provision was a testimony to God's care and faithfulness to many generations. And I think this passage brings Sabbath and God's provision together in a remarkable way. The story in Exodus 16 of the manna and the importance of Sabbath to how God's blessing works is prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments. The fourth commandment about keeping the Sabbath is recorded four chapters later in Exodus 20 It's a command tied to the rhythm of labor and rest, to rest for all of creation, based on God's choice to rest when completing creation. So the account in Exodus 16 of manna and Sabbath comes before the law. It's a story the people live into and can remember as they receive the commandment. It's a story of blessing falling out of the sky Blessing totally associated with God's hand in provision. They did nothing except gather it. Nothing they did could make more of it or make it last longer. If they tried to save it, it spoiled. If they trusted God, they had a chance to delight in sheer blessedness. And on the Sabbath, they weren't even supposed to gather it. On the Sabbath, there was no need to work, no striving, just blessed rest and more than enough food. So what does this story of manna and Sabbath suggest to us about God, about ourselves, and about the practice of Sabbath? So first, about God. I think it reminds us that we worship and serve and love a God who is gracious and supplies more than enough, more than enough provision, and all that we need and more of time and forgiveness and grace God who created the universe and made it beautiful, who shaped days and nights and seasons and Sabbaths, who provided water and manna, found reason to stop and delight in it. The same God continues to delight in providing more than enough. What God asks in return is our trust, our fidelity and obedience, our attention and delight. Second, what does this account about the people of Israel suggest to us about ourselves? And I think the story reminds us of how often our trust and confidence are dependent on our circumstances, and how hard it is to live what we believe when the circumstances turn really frightening. The children of Israel were worried about feeding their families. Could it be so bad to keep back a little manna to make sure there's something for tomorrow's breakfast, just in case the manna is delayed or disappears. How bad can it be if I go out to gather a little bit on the day of rest to make sure my children are fed? And anyway, the children of Israel had survived for centuries without Sabbath rest. Under the Egyptians, they'd worked hard all the time. They had all sorts of reasons to build in some protections, just in case the bread of heaven wasn't enough. The children of Israel had been freed from bondage, the bondage of Egypt, but they were still learning to embrace the freedom of a new way of life. They didn't understand that liberation involved a new way of living, a way of trusting the one who had liberated them, a way that embodied the rhythms God had observed in creation. This story is about trust. The language of the story is obedience and commands, but the manna and Sabbath pattern wasn't just a test of whether or not they would follow instructions. It was a test of trust under very difficult circumstances. Keeping Sabbath is not first about whether we will be obedient to a commandment, a law, or an expectation that often seems inconvenient. It is first about trusting the one we love with the ordering of our time and our efforts for every day of the week. Today, many of us value control, or at least the illusion of control, results we can measure, getting things done in an efficient way. And I think an appreciation of Sabbath challenges these emphases and helps human beings remember other values. If we work all the time, if we're anxious when we aren't getting things done, it isn't only Sabbath we're squeezing out of our lives, It's our capacity for delight and wonder. And third, what does this passage suggest about the practice of Sabbath for us? Sabbath is about trusting God in the provision of time. Time is our most precious resource. For the children of Israel in the desert, it was probably food, but for us, it is time. The manna account reminds us of God's provision of enough food. In the Sabbath, God is telling us there's also more than enough time. We are programmed at this point to think that there's not enough time. But time, actually unlike food or land or water, is always the same. It's 24 hours in a day and seven days in a week. When we struggle with not having enough time to rest or enjoy a Sabbath, perhaps the problem is not Sabbath, but with the rest of our days how we fill them, how we use them. Our busyness is not always in our control, but far more of our schedule is under our control than we realize or admit. But Sabbath is for everyone, not just us. If we take Sabbath seriously, we need to take care so that our rest doesn't cause harm or unrelenting work for others on a consistent basis. For example, there are implications for the expectations we place on spouses or co workers, for how we treat staff and volunteers in the church. God has given Sabbath to all of creation, to workers, parents, children, animals, land. It means we might need to rethink how we schedule and plan things. We can unwittingly destroy any chance others have to find delight and renewal in Sabbath. And Sabbath is not an excuse or framework for irresponsibility, and it's not a model for spiritually legitimated self indulgence. It is not me time. It is a gift. It's not something we're entitled to, though, as a gift, it's something we cherish and protect. There will be times we have to hold on to it lightly and trust God for grace and strength when responsibilities crash in on us or care for others makes special demands. But if we know how precious a provision it is, we will help each other find ways to enjoy it and be blessed by it. But we need to be careful not to turn its importance into a burden or yet another source of anxiety. We can embrace it as God's wise provision fitted into the rhythms of creation. We can enjoy it as a break, but a break from what? For the Israelites, it was a break from gathering food. In this culture, it's probably a break from unrelenting busyness, from the sort of 24-7 task orientation, from the need to constantly be buying or texting or working so that we can buy more. An embrace of God's rest needs to spill over into how we live the rest of the week, trusting him, not grabbing all we can get. If we don't pace ourselves and live in trust the whole week, Sabbath will always be an awkward intrusion into a crazy life. An appreciation for the meaning of Sabbath can restructure all of our days. Every minute belongs to God. It's all God's time. How we use the other days, the work we're engaged in, matters to God. What we do with our time matters. The experience of manna in the wilderness, we read in Deuteronomy 8, was God's way of reminding people that they didn't live by bread alone. They didn't live by their work alone, but by God's grace and power. Both manna and Sabbath are reminders of our dependence on the Lord. And yet the Lord, the one infinite in power and goodness, also took Sabbath. God rested. And so we read in Exodus 31 that Sabbath is a sign reminding us both of God's work in creation and God's finding refreshment in resting from it. Sabbath is a structuring of time that is about grace, not law. But we tend to see any kind of structure as a legalistic burden. But Sabbath creates an opening in time for things other than work. It's a structure for delight, a regular chance to remember, to notice, to rejoice, in all the ways in which what God has given us is more than enough. Sabbath keeping does not have to become legalistic to be real. It may need to be shaped by some self-discipline, but it is primarily blessing and gift. I think Sabbath is a challenge for almost everyone. It was for the children of Israel, and it is for us, for parents of young children children who don't stop being hungry or wet or sick just because parents want to rest, for pastors whose busiest day is the day most people would claim as Sabbath, for caregivers, either professional or family members, whose rest is often more irregular because caregiving doesn't stop. Part of the reason we struggle with Sabbath, we don't delight in it, is because we don't know what to do with it or how we should behave during this supposed time of rest. We often think of Sabbath in terms of things we shouldn't do, but that doesn't really help us that much. What should this rest look like? And again, Sabbath is not an excuse for mindless or superficial entertainment. It's a time for slowing down, for reflection, for hospitality, for enjoyment of the good gifts of God that we find in others, that we find in God, in creation. Perhaps what we can do is live into the structuring of our time and pray regularly to God to help us see the ways that it can be used for rest and refreshing, for renewal and joy. That won't be the same for all of us, and it won't even be on the same day for all of us, and it doesn't need to be. We do not need to be apostles of Sabbath. We are disciples of Jesus. But Sabbath is a gift that once opened will make our lives a little more beautiful and grace-filled. It's not easy because the larger culture does not support it, and we are not always sure what to do with that. But Sabbath for the follower of Jesus is a time set aside for delight, for gratitude, for physical and intellectual rest, for celebration and worship. And this story in Exodus 16 of manna and Sabbath reminds us that as we live fully for God, trusting in God for all our resources, whether it's time or food or energy or wisdom, there is more than enough. And so now as we turn to the table, we remember that in the Gospel of John, chapter six, the crowd came to Jesus and asked for a sign shortly after he had just 5,000 of them, they wanted another sign. And they say, so what work are you doing? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. What do you give us? And Jesus' response to them is that he is the bread of life, the bread from heaven. He promises, whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Whatever our situation, our weariness, our hunger, or thirst, Jesus promises that he is more than enough. He is the bread that God sends from heaven, the living bread, the bread for living. And as we partake of this table, we remember that in Jesus, we find freedom to rest and trust in him, freedom to see him as our Sabbath rest, and freedom to delight in his goodness and grace. We come to the table recognizing that in Christ we have all we need. We have more than enough.